Turn with me this morning in your copy of the Word of God to Mark chapter 9. We're going to turn directly to the text this morning and begin by reading it together. And then we're going to do what we can by the help of the Holy Spirit to glean some truth from this text. And uh, this is a very encouraging text to preach from this morning. And so I hope that you feel the encouragement that I have to bring from it today. So turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin reading in verse 14, and we're going to read down through verse 29. So it's a lengthy passage this morning, uh, but we will give attention to it and read it together. Before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you have given us your word. And um, we pray that you would remove the scales of sin that cover our eyes, Lord, that cover our heart. We pray that you would illuminate us. That, that we might clearly see and understand uh, your word as you've given it, and that we would um, we would feel and and grasp the great truth that that it has for us. And so we pray that you would speak loudly to us from your word as we read it now together, and that it would change us for the sake of your kingdom and your name. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Okay, Mark nine, beginning in verse fourteen, we read, and when he came to the disciples. He saw a great multitude around them and, excuse me, scribes disputing with them. Immediately when he saw him, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out. But they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. So um, the disciples, three of them, Peter, James, and John, have been on the Mount of Transfiguration with Christ. And If you were with us last week, and if you were not, I'm going to recap for just a moment, that Jesus, on the heels of prophesying and speaking about and telling them about the impending death and the cross and the crucifixion that is coming, the suffering that he would endure, he then calls his disciples and his people uh, to also bear their cross and explaining to them that as he has 
is going to suffer and die, so too is the path to glory for his people going to be a path of suffering and death. And he calls us and the cross calls us to bear uh, bear that suffering as our Savior did, as we sung about a bit earlier, uh, and to, to take up our cross and to follow him. And it's on the heels of that sober calling that Jesus then takes these three disciples up onto the mountain and transfigures before them into the direct glory and majesty of God the Father. So that as we have seen in other stories throughout the Bible in the Old Testament with Moses and with others, that, that, that the glory... Uh, the direct glory of God's presence and his majesty, it appears in the person of Jesus and it is, it is on display for Peter and James and John to see. And what we saw is that this is an incredible act of mercy because it is this very thing that is going to sustain these people and consequently us as we learn about it. It is, it is this experience of worship with Jesus that is going to sustain these men on their road of suffering as they as they endure their cross bearing so to speak and so this is a a story of great encouragement to them Jesus calls them to bear their cross and suffer as he will but then he gives them what they need by way of this miraculous encounter to encourage them of what is coming, to give them a foretaste of the experience that awaits them, the glory that awaits them at the end of the road of suffering. And, and it is because of that experience that they will always be able to walk down that road of suffering with their eye toward heaven and to the glory that is coming. And so, so I argued last time, if you were with us, that uh, it is often that Jesus takes us up onto the mountain by his grace and mercy. And even in the very story, the, 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 the words of scripture that we are given in verses 1 through 13 of Mark chapter 9 and elsewhere, where we are told about that story, so as to also encourage us to continue to suffer as we walk and to do so willingly and joyfully with our eye toward heaven. So, so that it is these mountaintop experiences with Christ as he displays for us the glory of God, the majesty of the Father, and the glory that awaits us. He gives us this foretaste. It is that that encourages us to press on in this life. Now, we did not speak of something that I think is crucially important. Uh, I, I've saved it for this week because I, I, I think that it helps us in understanding why verses 14 to 29 come immediately after uh, verses 1 through 13. Because there is a great contrast between what has been happening with Peter, James, and John on the mountain with Jesus, the glory and majesty of God and Moses and Elijah. There is a great contrast with what is going on in their experience and then what is taking place with the other nine of the disciples down at the bottom of the mountain. It is a completely different picture. And uh, in order for us to understand what I think the Bible and the Holy Spirit and what God is teaching us in that, uh, I, I have saved this question, this issue that you may have, I hope that you had in your mind last week, and that is this. If this mountaintop experience, this access to God's glory and presence, this being able to approach him and dwell with him and experience him, this incredible act of worship where we experience, we don't just stand from afar and behold his glory, but we are brought into God's presence and into his glory so that this act of worship, if that is what is to sustain us and what is to help us to bear our cross, the question that we should all have is how in the world do I get to those places? 
How do we get to that mountaintop? How is it that we get or that we find ourselves with that type of access that we are able to approach God in that fashion? Well, the passage uh, before us today, I think, is a picture of how we might come before the Lord. How we might come in worship and in service to be given access to to God directly and to his glory and to his majesty. And there's going to be two key ingredients that I'm going to point out that we find in this story that are necessary if we are ever going to approach God, if we are ever going to be given this access. One of them is prayer and one of them is belief. Those two issues come up clearly in this story, in this passage, and they are going to be the basic outline for our sermon today. The first one that we see is the issue of belief. He's talking with the father of the son, and uh, he tells him, uh, I can do this if you believe all things are possible. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit about what that means. But then he turns to the disciples at the end of the passage who come to him wondering why it is that they were so unable to cast out the demon. And he raises the issue of prayer, that this kind of demon can only be cast out. The spirit can only be uh, cast away by prayer. Um, And so we're going to take actually the second of those first. We're going to consider first how prayer Uh, the role of prayer in accessing or approaching God's presence. And then we're going to consider the role of of belief, the issue of belief. So prayer and belief. So when the disciples come off the mountain, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus is with them, uh, we, we do not need to think that he is glowing. You know, it says there in the text, and when he came, the disciples... Uh, those, the nine down at the bottom of the mountain, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes were disputing with them. And then immediately when they saw him, that is all of the multitude and the disciples and the scribes, the teachers of the law that were there, they were greatly amazed and they ran to him and greeted him. Uh, some have surmised that it's because like with Moses in the old Testament, when he came down from the mountain of being in, uh, the reflected glory of God's presence, it, that, he, that he came down glowing, you know, that his face was shining. And, and so as Jesus was transfigured on the mountain and was turned white as no one, no launderer could bleach it, the scripture tells us uh, that we saw last week, which is kind of strange language, but he's white and glowing, I think is the point. And this glory of God, his hair, his skin, his, even his clothes, the things that are on him, I think it's probably a, 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 an incorrect assumption to make that they, that they saw him and ran to him because he was maybe glowing like Moses was as he reflected God's glory. And the reason is because at the, at the, at the end of that story, what does Jesus tell the disciples, Peter, James, and John, that they tell no one about what they had seen? Well, if Jesus comes down off the mountain, still glowing, you know, putting on display the glory of God, it's not going to be much of a secret. So, so that if he's going to tell them not to tell anyone and not to let anybody know what they have seen, it seems to be a little contrary to that command to then come down off the mountain. I think, I think the reason that they all ran to him is because there is, at the bottom of the mountain, a great dispute taking place. They have come, uh, to this, this man has come and has brought his son to the disciples of Jesus, believing and thinking that his disciples and Jesus himself can fix the problem that the son is having. Uh, there is this spirit, this, this spirit of torment that is dealing with his son. It is giving him some sort of epileptic episodes, maybe, where he is uh, seizing and foaming and convulsing and falling about. Uh, it says so much so that it even 
sort of tosses him to and fro into the fire and into the water to destroy him. And so he brings his son uh, to where Jesus is. Jesus is up the mountain, though. And, and, and there's this dispute taking place because as, 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 as hard as they have been trying, they have yet been unable to cast out the demon. And so you can only imagine the criticism that's been taking place. I mean, I can just be honest with you. If I was to go uh, in, in, in our day today to one who claimed to be able to have the miraculous gift of healing, which, as, as I think all of you know, I, I think has, has ceased. I am a cessationist when it comes to the miraculous gifts. But if I was to go to somewhere and, and they claimed to be able to raise the dead or heal this sickness, and there was some that they could not heal, uh, I would use that as evidence to say that you do not possess the gift. And so they've come to Jesus for the purpose of, you know, him being all that he has claimed and shown himself to be, and the Father has brought the Son. But there's a dispute taking place between the disciples, the crowd, and do not miss the presence of the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. They were not fans of Jesus. They did not believe that he was the Son of God. They did not believe that he was who he said he was. And they were doing everything that they could do to bring about the end of his ministry. So you can only imagine, as they seek to hurl boulders at the ministry of Christ anyway, that as this man brings his sickly, uh, tormented son to the disciples of this man Jesus to be healed, and they're not able to do so, that this dispute would have broken out. Um, you know, you, you guys are not able to do what it is that he thinks you can do and what it is that Jesus has claimed to be able to do. And see, he's a fraud and he's a phony and his, his people are frauds and phonies. And so there was this great dispute taking place. And I think when they come down off the mountain, I think that the crowds and the people who have seen Jesus, maybe not his disciples, but have seen, who have seen Jesus time and again do these unbelievable, incredible miracles, especially those of healing and of controlling nature. They know his reputation. Many of them, no doubt, would have seen the things that he was doing, though it's difficult for us to know exactly where they were and what crowd this was. I think it's almost like they had come and brought the child, the man had brought the child to see Jesus, but Jesus was not there. And so when Jesus comes down off the mountain, Jesus is now entering the picture and they're overwhelmed with joy and they are very interested to see, oh, now the man is here live and in person. And so they run out to him amazed by him. I think they are anxious to see if he is going to settle the dispute because guess what would settle the dispute if he was to come off the mountain and fix the problem (laughs) dispute over. So I think that I don't think that it had anything to do with his glowing or that he was still transfigured, if you will, but that they were involved in this great dispute about why he was uh, unable to heal them. His disciples were unable to heal the boy. And, and they look and see the, the one coming that they believe can and that can settle the dispute once and for all. And so they run out to meet him. Well, then he has this interaction with the father and we will return to that. But but what I want you to see then is that as he comes to the disciples and they come to him at the end and after Jesus does in fact heal the boy, so it's obvious that the power of Christ was more than sufficient to take care of the problem, that the problem of evil in the boy, that the disciples are trying to rid, they're unable to do so and they they question Christ about why. Why is it that we were not able to do this? As we have desired to access, as it were, your power, your presence and to call down that power and to, to, to use it in a right fashion to drive out this demon, why is it that we were unable to, to have this access? Why is it that we were unable to do uh, what it is that we were trying to do? And the answer is very interesting. He says, this one can only come out by prayer. 
that leads us to, to I think, rightly understand that the, that the disciples, the disciples of Jesus, that they had come to the problem of evil that was present with them, and, and they had come to call upon the power and to access the, the power and the presence of God, as it were, to, to bring about healing in the situation, but they did so without prayer. I mean, if Jesus is going to say, well, the problem is that this one can only be cast out by prayer and they were unable to cast it out, then I think the issue is uh, that they were not praying, that they were coming to this act of service or this act of worship, as it were, this act of accessing the power of God for this purpose of this healing, but they had come to access it arrogantly, thinking that they somehow had a right or that they somehow were able in and of themselves to sort of stroll into God's presence and demand, even rightly, what it is that they wanted, at least for the right purpose of healing the man. But because they did so arrogantly and not through prayer, they were unable to do what it is that they set out to do. Um, Prayer is the way that we acknowledge that we are unworthy and that we are unable. We are unworthy and we are unable and that we are totally dependent upon someone else to accomplish for us and to grant for us what we cannot accomplish for ourselves. So too, like the disciples then, when we come and we have this interest in accessing the presence of God and the power of God, whether it's in corporate worship here on Sunday mornings with what we do, whether it's in acts of service, maybe like what the disciples were trying to do, whether it's out in our families and in our lives, you know, so many Christians they always talk about never being able to feel the power of God at work in their lives and never being able to feel like they are able to come into God's presence and never being able to feel like they have been given this access. And I would argue that the reason is because we do not often enough come humbly through prayer into that, into that place into that access. While it is true that, that we have now on this side of the cross been given access directly to God, that all believers, we do not need a priest, we do not need to go through someone else, we are able to come directly into God's presence for worship, to experience his power, the, the teaching and the leading of the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that we can do so and demand that he work and do at any time and in any way that we see fit. We cannot simply stroll into God's presence as if he's our best buddy and demand that he do the work or work in us or in our children or in the child that is trying to be healed like the disciples were doing according to our merit, as if we have some standing before him and some worthiness or right to be coming to him to begin with. What we need to understand, and I think what the disciples were failing to understand in this story, is that they do not, though they are the most intimate companions of Jesus, they do not have any worth or merit in themselves to come before God and ask anything of him. Now, that's a novel idea. Because there is a, there is a going thread in our culture of entitlement, and it has bled over into the church that we somehow deserve this. I mean, not not to be too picky, but there are signs and billboards in Mississippi that are put up by certain religious organizations that are good organizations that tell you to take your family and your kids to church because they need and deserve it. I would argue they need it 
But how arrogant of us to say that we deserve to be given access to God's presence and power and glory. We do not deserve to come into worship. The disciples did not deserve to be able to come before God and demand that he bring down his glory and stoop to the point of dealing with the the, the problems of a mere mortal man, a child. They did not have that right. You say, well, so how is it that we come? It is by prayer. The demon could not be cast out because they did not come by prayer. Have you ever listened carefully to the now popular formula for how people pray? Nobody prays in churches unless they say, in Jesus' name, amen. But have you ever thought why that formula exists? I I use it when I pray, and you should as well. It is because when we come to the Lord in prayer... And and we use the language in Jesus' name. We are acknowledging first, not only that by prayer we are unworthy and unable and totally in need of you to do what we cannot do. And that we do not have any ability to do this, so we are coming by prayer to you. We are also acknowledging that we don't even have the right to offer the prayer. That unless the prayer is offered in and through the blood and the person and the work of Jesus, then the prayer should not be offered. So that it is in Jesus' name that we pray. It is because of what Jesus has done for us that we stand in God's presence. It is because of the atoning sacrifice on the cross that he made that sinners are given a standing before, like we've read in Psalm 99, before a holy and righteous God. And so rather than strolling into God's presence and willy-nilly and flittingly demanding what God do for us and work in us and heal us and fix us and our families and speak to us, and teach us, we come acknowledging that, yes, we need him to do these things, but we prepare and pray and beseech the Lord in and through the name and the person and the work of Jesus, acknowledging not only what we need, but that we don't even have a right to ask it. Do you see what the disciples had forgotten? That access to God, that worship and service is only possible because of Jesus. They were, they were not able to, to do anything for the, for the young boy. I think maybe they had thought they could and thought that they were. And so we close our prayers in Jesus' name. Because unless we come into the presence of God, being shielded by Jesus, unless we cross over the gap, that stands between us and him via the cross, we are ever in danger of perishing in his presence. See, here's the question that we did not ask last week that you should have asked. Why did Peter, James, and John not die? Do you you know that in every instance of the direct appearing of God's glory in the Old Testament, that no one could look or behold it or be in his presence and live? So much so that the high priest was only given that access one time a year. And, 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 and they were 
ever in danger of being smitten because of their sinfulness. And they had to enter into that single time on that single day in a very specific way so as that they would be prepared for standing before God. You could not touch the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the direct presence of God. And if you did for any reason, even for good ones, then you would die instantly. When Moses was going to behold the glory of God, Jesus, God God himself had to hide him in the cleft of the rock and cover the opening lest he be terminated. The question is, Peter, James, and John, they go up onto the mountain with Jesus, and Jesus not reflects God's glory, but is God incarnate and transfigures to his original state of the direct glory of God. And Peter and James and John are given access to the glory and majesty and holiness and righteousness of God, and they do not die. The question is why? The answer is because Jesus was there. Do you realize that's the first time that the glory of God has appeared in the person of Jesus? What does that help us to see? That if we are ever going to come and access the glory of God, the presence of God, the power of God, if we are going to come and be encouraged and experience God in worship, if we are going to have the power of God in service, if we are ever going to approach him, it is only going to be as we stand behind Jesus. Otherwise, we will die. Do you you see that picture there? The only reason Peter, James, and John did not die as would have been the case, I mean, it tells us later, later in the Bible that no man can see God and live. <laughs> no man can be in God's direct presence and live. It is too much for our sinful estate to bear. The glory, simply the glory and holiness of God Almighty would kill us forever. But when the glory appears to us in and through the person of Jesus, we can see it and we can experience it and we can live like Peter, James, and John did. So if we're ever going to come to God, if we're ever going to approach him in worship and service, it is only going to be through prayer. Secondly, I think we see in this passage, turning back now to the interaction of Jesus with the father of this man, it is only going to be uh, in and through the issue of belief. Uh, I'm going to give it a special nuance, though, so I would ask that you listen carefully. The interesting thing, when, when we come down the mountain where Peter, James, and John have been experiencing God's presence in this new and unique and profound way, we come down to the bottom of the mountain where God's presence seems to be totally gone. It is not there. There is this dispute taking place, and, and he is... The, 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 the child is not being healed and the disciples are not able to do it. And everyone seems to be relying upon themselves and coming, uh, coming to the issue and coming to this desire of access to access God's power in a wrong way, I would argue, except for the father of the child. Uh, we read, he tells him, if you, let's just begin reading again in, uh, excuse me, in verse 16. It says, and he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Talking about the dispute. Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who, is, who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth. He gnashes at his, his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So the dispute is taking place between them and the scribes and those that would oppose them as to why this was unable. And he answered and said to him, look at what he says. This is Jesus speaking. Oh, faithless generation. So, so faith, belief faithlessness is present. How long shall I be with you? And then he goes even further. O faithless generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I put up with you? 
And then he just stops off and says, bring the child to me. So they brought the child to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground, and he wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father how long this had been taking place, and he says, from childhood, and he gives him some descriptions. And then in verse 23, Jesus said to him, well, let's go back to verse 22, and he often is thrown to the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice he was not dependent upon himself. He realized that he could do nothing to fix it. He realized his disciples could do nothing to fix it. So he runs to Jesus and Jesus and pleads with him and him only to do what only he can do, to be compassionate and to help them. And, and then here it is. Jesus says to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately after the father of the child cried out, he said with tears, Lord, I believe, but then this really striking here, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. So while everyone, including the disciples, is trying to access God's power and presence on their own merit, the dad is different. His interaction with Jesus is astonishing because it teaches us some significant truths about how we are to approach God in addition to prayer, how we are to worship, how we are to be given access. Unlike the others in the story, the dad only is willing to acknowledge his own weakness and inability and imperfection and to approach God understanding that he has no merit or worth to be there. So the issue then becomes the man's unbelief. And Jesus offers him this word, if you can believe all things are possible. This is greatly misunderstood. It is abused by preachers all over the world. Uh, they, they say that when things don't happen in your life or when miracles don't uh, come that you need and when you just don't get the job or when the sickness is simply not healed, that the problem is you just didn't believe enough. If you would just believe, then all things are possible. Well, let's, let's take that practically sort of a, a bit further to see how silly that idea is that the problem is simply that people just don't believe enough and that that if in fact all things are possible do you mean that if i believed that i could be taller that in fact i could be taller no or that if you believed that you could sort of have your hair returned to you for those of you who are aging and losing it that if you would just believe enough that it would be possible for you to have your hair returned to you and the answer is certainly not and we can see and understand that and it is also the case in the life of God's people regarding miraculous acts of power by God think about think about even in the scriptures think about Jesus he comes to he comes to God in the garden of gethsemane and pleads with him to change the situation. Let's do this another way. Can this be done a different way? And God says, no, it cannot be done another way. Was the problem just that Jesus didn't believe enough or it could have been changed? No. Right? So, so this, is not an, this is not sort of encouraging us that we can do whatever we want and we can bring about any end that we so seek as long as we believe enough. I do not think that is the point. I think the point is that if we can believe, we can bear all the things that God brings to us in his providence whether it's good or bad. So that, this is not a sermon about that, but I, I, did want to, I did want to make that clear to you, that, that, that what he is not saying is that you can do anything that you want or that you seek or that you think necessary, but that you can, if you will believe and trust in Christ enough, if we believe, then we can bear rightly and joyfully whatever it is that God thinks necessary for us. Okay, so then let's turn to the man's response. Because this is where I think we learn something about how we approach God believing, how we are given access. 
Jesus says to him, yes, all things are possible if you believe. Immediately the father of the child cries out. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Isn't that interesting? That the man comes to him and he says, I believe, but I'm struggling to believe. And, and I believe, but I have doubts. And I want to believe you, but I don't, I don't have it all figured out. And I don't have all of my ducks in a row. And I don't have all of my life worked out yet. And I, I have not gotten it all on track. And I've not totally dealt with all the issues in my heart and in my mind. I want to believe you. Please help me where I'm struggling to do so. <laughs> Isn't this interesting? Because Jesus, as he could have, does not tell the man, well, you need to, you need to go your way and go figure it out. And when you get it all figured out, and when you're able to completely believe and to not have any doubts and to not have any fears and to not have any struggles, then you come back and talk to me and we'll see about you having this access to me and to my power. That's not what he tells the guy. And he could have. The guy says, Lord, I believe, but I'm really struggling to believe. And I'm, I'm really full of doubts and I really don't have it all figured out. And Jesus heals his son anyway. Tim Keller, I think, is helpful here. I think he's helpful here. He says, through Jesus, we do not need perfect righteousness, just repentant helplessness to access the presence of God. Do you see what the man did, the father of the son? He flung himself out of Jesus' feet in repentant helplessness and said, I can't do anything, and I'm not even sure that I completely believe, and I don't have it all figured out, but I think you can fix it. See, that's faith. That's trusting in Jesus. And so many pastors... So many Christians, they struggle with this idea that, oh, I've got to go and get my life all fixed up before I can come to the Lord. I, I can't join that church. I can't profess faith in Christ because look at the baggage that I'm bringing with me. Jesus' message, the message of the cross and of the gospel, is not that you need to do anything to get right to come to him, but that if you will come to him when you're wrong, he will help to begin to make you right. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus does not send us away to come up with or to find on our own perfect righteousness. All he requires of us is repentant helplessness where we fall at our feet and cry out to him and ask him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Again, Tim Keller continuing with his thought here. Perfect righteousness is impossible for us, he says. And if you wait for that, you will never come into the presence of God. You must admit that you are not righteous. And then you must admit that you need help. When you can say that, you are approaching God to worship. Do you, do you see the fallacy there? Do you see the, the problem? So many people never experience the presence of God. They, they never experience the glory and the majesty. They're, they're never encouraged when they come into worship. They're never given that access. And it's because they are too busy trying to fix themselves up so that they'll be good enough to be in his presence. Listen to me very carefully this morning. The testimony of this story is that if you're trying to get and make yourself good enough to access and experience the power and presence of God, you will wait forever. The good news and the testimony of this story is that God does not require that of us, but that by prayer, through the person and work of Jesus, we have been given access, direct access to the glory and majesty and power and presence of God Almighty, 
and that Jesus will stand before us and him and shield us from his wrath against our sin. And it is when we are able then through Jesus to come into that presence that we are given what we need to trod the bricks of suffering, to walk the path that Jesus walked, to be encouraged, to press on bearing our cross with our eyes toward heaven. So my encouragement to you this morning as I close is simply this. If you you have never experienced the presence of God, worshipped, been brought in, if, if you know nothing of the power of God in your life and, and the power of the Spirit at work in your life and in your ministries and in your service, what are you waiting for? Why not? Is it because we arrogantly stroll into worship week after week, not taking 10 seconds to spend any time in prayer preparing ourselves to be there? Let me encourage you, before you come to worship, before you do service acts of ministry, before you lead your family, before you lead your spouse, before you do anything, anything regarding your walk with the Lord and experiencing and accessing him directly, before you ever talk to him, before you ever worship him and sing to him, spend some time in prayer, praying in the name of Christ that he would prepare you for that endeavor. Or is it maybe because you don't believe or struggle to believe like the Father? but you're too busy trying to work out all your doubts so that you can come in perfect righteousness. Listen, that's a standard to which you will never attain. Stop trying. Jesus says, come to me as you are. Come to me, you that are burdened, that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, come, not in perfect righteousness, but in repentant helplessness and experience my glory and my power, salvation. If you've never done that, I would ask you to consider why, and then I would simply encourage you, what are you waiting on? You can come just like you are. You can believe just where you are. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have it all figured out, and you don't have to uh, be perfect. (laughs) Come as you are and experience him as he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the access that you have given us to yourself. Lord, that we might approach you, that we might worship you, that we might experience you as Peter and James and John did through the person and work of Jesus. So that when we cannot come with perfect righteousness, if we come in him, It is his perfect righteousness through which we come. Lord, thank you that you've given us prayer. And I pray that you would help us to use it rightly, to prepare to come before you, to ask you to work in us to do what we need done, but also to acknowledge in prayer that we do not even have any worth or merit to ask those things so that we ask them in and through Christ. Lord, I pray for two things this morning. I pray that every person is able to access you, to experience you, to feel your power and your leading and your glory. Lord, but I pray also that they would be hidden and covered and protected by the person and the work of Jesus, that they would be believing and trusting and coming in and through him. 
Lord, if there is one in this building today that does not know you, that has never experienced you, that does not have a relationship with Christ, I pray that that access would be granted today as they believe and trust in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.